I don't know how the math works out. It was 8,000 miles roughly. How is that in kilometers? 8,000 miles, 10, maybe 13,000 kilometers. It's a long way. But uh, it's good to be with you. And thank you for taking the time to be here. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. Specifically, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I'm here to offer, this is a Bible study in some regard. This is not necessarily a Sunday sermon, but it's a Bible study, and we're going to dig in deep. So I pray your, your minds are sharp and ready so that we can learn from the Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. These are the words of God. But he who is spiritual examines all things, yet he himself is examined by no one. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern both good and evil. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father and God, we glorify you this evening as we look to your word. Help us, Holy Spirit, to discern the difference between good and evil, between the voice of the enemy and the voice of God. Teach us to number our days so that we will not squander what you have given. In Christ's name I pray, amen. amen. Well, if I uh, started this off with a question, if I were to ask you what makes someone a spiritual person, what would you say? What are the marks of spirituality? We're looking at biblical spirituality here. What would the mark be of someone who is spiritual? Is it singing praises for five straight hours? Not that you can't do that, but is that spirituality? Is praying for more than an hour spirituality? What about reading your Bible every single day? Would we say that is spirituality when you're reading your Bible every single day? <clears throat> Could it be that a spiritual person is one who flails about expressing himself bodily during church? Is that spirituality? And when you lift up your hands in worship, do we look at that and say, that is spirituality? Is spirituality marked by one's commitment to attending church regularly? Can we see a spiritual person in action by how they speak to others, perhaps even using very pious, holy, lofty language, which very few may understand? <laughs> Am I stepping on toes? Yes. Ah, good. What would you say? I want to talk this evening about biblical spirituality. The phrase itself is somewhat excessive. And in the English language, we like the word superfluous. It's excessive. It's almost unnecessary. It's like saying born-again Christian. 
Well, strictly speaking, are there Christians who are not born again? Ah, that is the question. Outwardly, right, they could be viewed as Christians, but maybe they are not born again. We put statements like this together, and we do that because we have an axe to grind, uh, meaning we have an agenda, and I do have one this evening. Throwing the adjective biblical in front of the noun spirituality is meant to communicate the fact that there are correct versions of spirituality, and then there are incorrect ones. And the determining factor for discerning the difference between the two is whether or not we're thinking biblically about the topic at hand. Because we can invent all sorts of things, can't we? What we are in need of is a thoroughly biblical version of spirituality that cuts through the fog of tradition and familiarity. A biblically informed version of spirituality that doesn't allow for fake Christianity. For Christianity that just looks nice, but on the inside it's corrupt. What did Jesus do with the Pharisees? He excoriated them. He yelled at them. He chastised them for having a clean cup on the outside, but what was in the inside? Filth. And we don't want fake Christianity to be pervasive in our churches. Now, my contention is that the Western world has exported a pietistic gospel, which is no gospel at all, and has been doing so for a very long, long time. Now, you should hear me correctly here. I am charging the American church with exporting unbiblical ideas around the world, including here in Africa, and we need to repent. I am charging the American church with exporting unbiblical ideas all around the world, including here in Africa. And I, for that, am sorry. Well, which, you might be thinking, which unbiblical ideas are we talking about? Well, first and foremost is the problem of pietism. I'm going to define that in a second. Pietism, and I know Pastor Ron's going to go after some of these too, but before discussing biblical spirituality, I want to explain what I mean by pietism so that you understand exactly what I'm getting at. All right? So before discussing all of that, we need to know what we're talking about. I'm not saying that piety is bad. I'm not saying that piety and holiness and acts of charity and these things that we even said earlier are bad. Okay? Um, we should attend worship services regularly. We should be involved as a church in the people of God. We, we, we should be in biblical churches, not fake churches that are teaching false gospels. Name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. We don't want any of that. We want to pray regularly, absolutely. Do you pray regularly? You should. We should partake of the Lord's Supper regularly. We should frequently read our Bibles cover to cover. So we should be that. It's important to be pious. I want you to know that it is important to be a pious person, someone devoted to Christ and the means of grace that He's given us. We want to serve our neighbor when the need arises. Yes, sir. 
And it's very important, though, to not be a pietist. Pietism is this. It's a systematic philosophy. It's a systematic philosophy that believes in the deeper life. It's a systematic philosophy that believes in the deeper life, meaning they believe that inward spirituality is what matters most in the here and now. It's a systematic philosophy that believes in the deeper life. How many times have you heard that? We must go deeper. We must go deeper. You know what happens when you go too deep to find the Titanic? <laughs> People make compromises and they end up dead. Deeper, deeper, deeper. We must go deeper. Or, or we must go higher, higher, higher. And it becomes this spiritual game of trying to get something more than what God's already given us. See, pietists do not believe that Christians should be involved in the material things of the world, meaning things like politics, especially politics. My nation is plagued with Christians who do not believe you should be involved in politics at all. Business, economics, uh, other cultural pursuits. Pietists don't have time for that. They're too busy in their prayer closet, and they never leave to do any good. Another toe stepped on. See, pietists believe that only spiritual practices like Bible reading and prayer and all of these things are the only things Christians should ever focus on. And they see, they see no need to participate in a culture that's just going to ruin us and distract us. The pietists, this was a movement that came after the Reformation 500 years ago in Europe. And they believed that they could give improvement to what Christ commanded in his word by swearing to live pious lives, to be secluded from the world. You've heard of monasteries and the monks, and many of them believed that that form of asceticism could get, they could be superior Christians. They don't get entangled in cultural affairs. They believe that they can just separate themselves from the world and live that high life, the deeper life. See, in their view, what Christ commanded was great, but what man needs is something more. It's not enough to have the Bible. We need something more. What Christ commanded was great, but man, we need to be more enlightened. Sort of this moral, spiritual high ground. We're not there, so we have to keep pumping ourselves up and sing louder. Be more devoted. And it's the treadmill. You're constantly on it, running and running, but getting nowhere. That's the problem of pietism. The practice itself and the culture that it breeds in our churches is designed to give people a better experience of Christianity, making others feel as though they are not part of the elite. Well, my church, this is the megachurch problem in America. They're a dime a dozen, right? They're everywhere. They have all the lights and the lasers and the huge band and the amazing sound equipment. They have everything you could ever want in a, quote, worship experience. But it's garbage. 
It's a mile wide, a kilometer wide, and an inch deep. It's fake Christianity. See, all of us are just ordinary people. We're not cool enough. We're not fancy enough. We're not flashy enough. We're just ordinary people. You see, at its root, pietism is dualistic asceticism, meaning it's a man-made tradition and philosophy. The spiritual life is good. The physical life is bad. We must hurry up and get out of this world quickly so that we can go away and do our things in heaven. But it's a new heavens and a new earth. Yes? It's not just a new heaven, it's a new earth. You're going to live on earth in the eternal state. This is mysticism at its finest. And I'm here to tell you that pietism, the pietism and that idea that American Christianity has exported to the world needs to die. Let's look at our text. 1 Corinthians 2.15. Believe it or not, the Bible does tell us exactly what spirituality looks like, and it's not pietism. Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 15, you can read it, he who is spiritual examines all things. Maybe some of your Bible translations say judges. Okay? Anakrino in the Greek. Another word for examines is, is judges. Paul says in verse 14 that the natural person, the unregenerate person, doesn't accept the things of God's Spirit. The foolish person, as Paul says just a few verses before this, is the person who rejects the cross of Christ. The cross is folly to the world, right? It's folly to the world, yet it's the wisdom of God. The unregenerate can't understand the things of God because they are spiritually examined. They are spiritually judged. They are spiritually discerned. And that word examined is the same word here in the next verse. Paul uses the same word in the end of verse 14 and into verse 15, and it means to judge. Listen, spirituality, Paul says, requires a judicial examination. You want to be a spiritual person, you need to be a person who judges rightly. That's what he says right here. And that word is like a, in terms of a courtroom. It's a reference to a judge who's sitting at the bench, who is inquiring of the matter, hearing the cases from both sides, discerning the facts. What is the defendant and the plaintiff in the situation? What, are the, what happened? Where are the witnesses? Where's the evidence? Show me so I can make a judicial determination. That is what Paul says spirituality is. It's you looking at the world and judging. And what are we supposed to judge? What does it say in your text? What does it say in the Bible? But he who is spiritual judges what? Some things? All things? The cross of Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God, and it's the very thing through which we judge everything else. All, everything is judged through the lens of Christ. Certain things must be approved. There are certain things that we can approve of. And then there are things that we can avoid. And to be a mature man, to be a mature woman, 
is to be a spiritual man or woman, a Holy Spirit man or woman, one capable of exercising sound judgment in life. And I'm going to step on your toes here. And we joke about this, the bishop and I. Are we on Zambian time or American time? Right? What? Outside of flight delays and baggage lost? <laughs> well, whose time are we on here? We're talking about self-discipline, self-control, maturation, the ability to look at the world and judge it for what it is in light of the cross of Christ. See, true biblical spirituality is, it is Holy Spirit spirituality. When we say spirituality, we're talking about the things of the Holy Spirit. And all of that's centered on the death and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, which aids us in making correct determinations and pronouncements. How do you as a father or a mother help your children to grow in the Lord? Well, you're trying to teach them to discern, to see what is good and righteous and holy and that which is polluted and sinful and should be avoided. Now, it sounds somewhat funny to say that a spiritual person judges everything, doesn't it? Didn't Jesus say, judge not, lest ye be judged? Got to keep reading. Don't stop at Matthew 7, 1. Keep reading. Because he also expects you to discern when to stop throwing your pearls before swine. That recalls a little bit of judgment. See, it flies, this idea flies in the face of that pietistic culture that I was talking about, where we sort of just close our eyes and we raise our hands and we feel the Holy Spirit's presence in our worship services. But we've been taught never to judge anyone, and yet Paul says, judge everyone and everything in the world. <laughs> All things! <laughs> Obviously, he's not talking about the condescending judgment of, I'm better than you. He's talking about judicial maturation. Good, bad. Know the difference. And don't confuse the difference. Now, because we are... And again, we're talking about discernment. But because we are covenantalists, Christians are covenantalists. You are in covenant by the blood of Christ with God. We are covenantalists. And because of that, we are by that fact alone. We are ethicists. You know what an ethicist is? Someone who studies ethics. What is right? What is wrong? What is good and bad? That's just the natural flow of things. And because we are ethicists too, we see things in the world as either good or bad. There's no neutrality, which means you're either with Christ or you're an enemy of Christ, correct? There's no middle ground here. You're either with Christ or you're against Christ. And someone is either in Adam or in the second Adam. You're either fallen in our father Adam, in your sin, or you were resurrected and raised with Christ, the second Adam. There's no middle ground here. Someone is either in covenant with Satan or covenant with Christ. No middle ground. See, all things in this world should be viewed through this ethical and judicial lens. You must see what you see in politics, in business, in, 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 in judging discerning what's going on in my country, which is just chaos at the moment, okay? America is kind of on fire right now because we've rejected God. 
but you should be able to discern between good and evil. We are evaluators. We filter everything through the authority of God's Word, and we carefully pass judgments, critiquing and questioning and examining and thoughtfully thinking through, is this a wise investment of my money? Is this not a wise investment of my money? Should I be doing this with my life, or should I be doing that with my life? You have to, as a judge, pull the facts and put them before you and discern what is it that God would want me to do. That's what it means to be a spiritual person, friends. The spiritual person is a mature person. A mature person is a covenantal person, a man or a woman who sees the world through the lens of God's law, God's gospel. So this is ethical, not emotional, by the way, because we, we, we like to think of that in churches, right? How much of an emotional high can we get now, you have emotions, and that's good, and you should um, express them accordingly, but be tempered about it. Be in self-control with your emotions, and that's why Paul says that the spiritual man judges all things, not the spiritual man feels all things. Go to Hebrews chapter 5 again. These are heavy con concepts, but they are very important concepts. I wouldn't come and put my time and energy and my money into coming to the country that I love just for the fun of it. And I love Bishop, and I've, and I've gotten to know some of you over the years, and God willing, I'll be back. But I'm here with a mission. <laughs> this is important. Hebrews 5.14, most likely written by Paul, that's my opinion, other scholars agree, but Hebrews gives us a grand vision of the implications of Christ's atoning work. Here, Paul critiques people who should know better. They should know better. He says, by now you should be teachers. Yeah. I've pastored in churches where I have a 60-year-old man who couldn't tell you what the gospel is. He's been in a church his entire life. He should be teaching these younger men, and he's not. That's a shame. By now, you should be teachers. And they see themselves as wise, but I'll tell you right now, pride makes you really stupid. They were dull. They were unwilling to move on towards maturity. They hung on to these elementary doctrines. What are these elementary doctrines? Baptism, resurrection. That's what the Bible says these things are elementary doctrines. And rather than moving to biblical, true spirituality, they were stuck. And he makes it clear here. Look at the verse. Solid food is for the mature. Ha-ha. <laughs> I have three kids. Boy, girl, boy. 15, 11, and 10. That's their ages. But when they were one years old, they didn't ask me for a huge steak. Why not? They weren't ready for it. They certainly didn't know that that was even an option for them. But by then, they wanted to try to eat more solid-type foods. Paul says solid food is for the mature. Notice he doesn't say solid food is for the older men. Because you could be 60 years old and be the most immature, non-spiritual person. 
It's not the age, it's the ethics. He says, solid food is the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern both good and evil. Have you seen this verse before? Did you just gloss over it? The milk is repentance and eternal judgment, he says. And oftentimes we think that's the height of Christianity. But it's not. The solid food is maturation and growth and the ability to judge all things. Having your senses trained so that you're able to discern between good and evil, that's what maturity looks like according to Scripture. And judging all things is the solid food of the mature. Now, in my church, I, when I preach, I get to this point, and we've looked at the text, I say, so how shall we then live? Because you've been given the biblical exegesis, you've looked at the text, how do we live? How do we live in light of that? Well, the reason I wanted to discuss this topic with you is because I, I don't want you, and when I say you, I mean Zambia, to fall into the same trap that many Christians in America have fallen into. I'm trying to do you a favor. There is a great temptation to want to section off your Christian life. Bible, prayer, church stuff is over here, and then culture and business and politics and economics is over there. I just have to keep my Christianity over here to the side. There is a great temptation to want to section that off. And because many Christians lack the discernment necessary to combat this problem, they are prone to keep their faith between their ears and in their heart. Does God deal with the heart? He does. Does God only deal with the heart? No. He deals with your hands. He deals with your feet. He deals with your mouth. He deals with it all. It starts in the heart, but it goes out from there. And you don't want your faith to just be here. Oh, yes, Jesus is Lord. Yep, I get that. You don't want it to stop there. The... These, these are pietists. They want to sequester the rule and reign of King Jesus to their hearts and mind. Jesus is Lord, we say. Is he Lord over the president of Zambia? He has all authority. The answer is yes. Guess what the president of Zambia should do? He should fall down on his knees and worship the triune God and obey his law word just like the President of the United States. You can't tell me that Jesus is Lord and that means nothing. They, they say that in their heads. They dare not say it to a politician. It's one of my favorite things to do. I know Ron's done it too. We talk to politicians locally. You know, I'd love to have a, a meeting with President Biden. Oh, I would have some things to say. But that's when the rubber meets the road. Are you going to actually tell a politician that Jesus is Lord? See, in this scenario, the Christian rarely finds himself engaged in evangelism. Remember how many, how many people have said to us, just preach the gospel, Ron. Just preach the gospel. Why are you getting involved in these other things? Just preach the gospel. What's the funny thing about that? They don't ever preach the gospel. I'm walking down the same street they are, and they're not stopping me and saying, are you a Christian? Why not? You should believe in Christ and have your sins forgive, forgiven. 
They're not telling that to me. They don't get involved in these things and and, and fighting for the fatherless, the widow, the orphan. They don't ever deal with these real problems. That's what the church is for. That's true religion, James says. What spirituality? Oh, I can sing forever and I'll fall down on my knees and I do all this stuff. That's not true religion. True religion is putting your money where your mouth is. True religion is putting your time where it ought to be. See, the consequences of pietism, they are devastating. I'm seeing it rip our country to shreds. And I don't want you to fall in the same trap. In my, in my country, Christians really only express their Christianity in attending church on Sunday. And even then, many would prefer to stay home and consume church through some online portal like Facebook or YouTube. And instead of discerning between good and evil, instead of judging all things in terms of the cross of Christ, they would rather be comfortable keeping their Christian commitment to a minimum. I know Jesus said to take up my cross and follow him, but that cross is too much. I just need to sit down for a minute. And that minute turns into days and weeks, and months, and years, and before you know it, you look around and your country is a disaster because we have not taken up our cross. And that's the version of Christianity that I'm afraid has been exported all around the world, and it's here in Zambia too, and that's why Pastor Ron and I do what we do both at home and while in Africa. In many regards, our mission here is to undo the problems that our brothers and sisters in America have caused to try. I can go before God someday and say, I tried. I tried. And I'll tell you right now, this is a very difficult message to hear. It's a very challenging message, but it is one of the most important ones that I believe you could hear. We simply must get rid of the notion that Jesus is only Lord in our hearts. It was uh, Abraham Kuyper. He, uh, he was a reformed statesman of the Netherlands um, uh, 100 years ago. He said this, How then can you continue to harbor the illusion that as long as you honor Jesus as high priest, the honor of the king may leave you indifferent? How many of you love what Christ did for you on the cross? How many of you rejoice in the resurrection? How many of you give two thoughts about the ascension of Christ and what it means for him to be ruling and reigning as king and lord over the nations right now? Churches love that. And I love it too. That's the heart of the gospel. Our, our sins are atoned for. But why would we not care about the kingdom that he has established? By his blood, no less. I want to urge you to refrain from their temptation to think that spirituality is about church attendance and tithes and offerings and those things, which are good and healthy things to do. Um, I want to refrain. I'm going to step on some more toes. If you think speaking in tongues is biblical spirituality, you're not where the Bible says you're to be. And I'm not against that. I'm not trying to squash that. I'm just saying put it in perspective. Uh, strong biblical theology. I love doctrine. I love digging deep. I love theology. I love teaching it. 
But that's not spirituality. I hope it's spirit-driven, but it's not the definition of spirituality. Prayer. These are all healthy and good things that we do, but it ought to launch us into the world with a biblical spirituality. Now, if you, if you want to demonstrate your Christianity to the world, it's not about just inviting people to church. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. We should be having more conversations about that, absolutely. But if you want to demonstrate your Christianity to the rest of Zambia, demonstrate it by being mature, by discerning between good and evil, by taking seriously the call to disciple the nations. Guys, it's your job to teach this nation and other nations how to obey and follow Christ. By seeing all of life as this integrated whole in which you get to participate using your gifts. Some of you are not pastors. Praise God. You're not less than. You're not less than anything. You're in the image of God. Christ has restored you. Be a businessman to the glory of God. Make a ton of money and start funding missions worldwide. And I'll tell you this. Here we go. Forget what the nonsense of the United Nations is attempting to shove down your throats. And they are. You may not see it, but they are. Forget what the Biden administration wants when it wants you to allow for homosexuality and abortion in exchange for U.S. dollars. Forget it all. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's not worth compromising. Your king spilt blood. Don't you betray him. There is no possible way to expect to serve King Jesus and compromise with the Western paganism and atheism that has overrun our country that's being paraded in front of you. Remember, Jesus warned us not to neglect the weightier matters of the law. Now we're getting into it. Do not neglect the weightier matters of the law. You can sing and dance and shout all you want, but if you are unwilling to address apostasy and meet it with a robust Christian worldview evangelism, if you're unwilling to address political anarchy and meet it with a robust Christian political theory, if you're unwilling to step up and meet the social challenges that your country faces, then you have neglected the weightier matters. God cares about justice and righteousness. He cares about the fatherless. He cares about the orphan. He's not interested in you wasting time singing for 10 hours straight thinking that that's spirituality. In my country, we've done, we've done this. We have done it, and boy, it's bad. We have believed that we can be Christians and not respond to the humanism that has taken hold of our political and media institutions. How many Christians, Ron, drive by abortion clinics on their way to church, never once trying to engage in seeking justice for these neighbors? Millions. How many Christians in my country simply do not share the gospel with anyone ever? And and what Zambia needs, I'm telling you, is not more of the same. Zambia needs a paradigm shift, amen? A paradigm shift now so that she she doesn't fall prey to what has happened in the West. Because the West is a disaster. 
Africa, I believe this with all my heart, and I wrote, Ron will amen this. Africa is in a unique position to chart a new path forward for the world. You are. But you're not going to do it if you're not a biblical spiritualist. If you're not going to discern between good and evil. If you're just trying to follow the path of my country, I'm warning you, do not do it. Uganda did it recently with some of its legislation. I know you still have Islam in the north, and I know it's everywhere to some degree or another, but you also have nominal Christianity right next door. Do you know what nominal Christianity is? It's Christianity that doesn't demand anything. Cheap grace, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it. I think you are in a unique position here, friends. You have the ability to ignore the folly of the West, to continue to develop yourselves politically and culturally, to lead the world by example. Um, but if you're going to become economic slaves to China, you're not discerning between good and evil. Piety, piety is good. Pietism is evil. Pietism fails to acknowledge the Lordship of Christ. It fails to acknowledge the fact that God has put us as image bearers on this creation to work and keep this creation. It fails to acknowledge that the Bible and all of the Bible is important, and I'm talking especially about the Old Testament, that God's law is still applicable today. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it, to bring it to its appointed place where God is glorified and where man can live and flourish underneath his authority. Pietism affects the church in a grand way, and inevitably, a culture of pietism leaves people in the local church wondering where the elders stand on issues in the culture. I'll tell you right now, I've said this before, if you only got your news from what was going on in church, would you know anything? I'm not saying, Bishop, you need to stand up here. All right, and the Dow Jones Network in New York City is down. No, no, no. I'm saying when a global pandemic happens, are you able to discern between good and evil? To see these miscreants, these evil people who want to be in power and over oppress people? Can you see through that? And in these types of churches, the pastor doesn't preach about it. The elders don't shepherd in light of it. The church simply stays silent on the cultural malaise and evil of the hour. People in the local church become even more detached. They become more confused. I thought I was supposed to just love Jesus. I didn't know I was supposed to be involved in these other things. They're never equipped to get their hands dirty. And I'll tell you right now, when the pulpits run dry, the people starve. Pietism pushes the church on the defensive instead of the offensive. The lamb spilt blood, therefore the world is now ours, it's our culture, it's God's law which is made ours for the taking and using of it, our worldview, it must be implemented if civilization is going to thrive. And yes, you bet it's going to get very messy. Now I'm trying to land the plane here, coming to a close, descending in this message. Practically speaking, 
Pietism is impotent to give you any tangible value in going to work each day. What makes you go up with a fire in your bones to wake up in the morning and say, all right, I'm going to seize this day for the glory of Christ. I'm not going to squander my time. I'm not going to waste anything else. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to labor. I'm going to sweat. I'm going to cry. I might spill blood in the process, but I'm going to do what God has called me to do. If you're a pietist, you won't do that. If the false dichotomization of life, putting life into two spheres here, if that is presupposed, if we assume that that's a good thing to keep spiritual stuff here and physical here, you're never going to see value in, in woodworking and bricklaying. You're never going to see any value in that. You're just going to think, I have to sit here and put these bricks together to build this home for somebody I don't even know? The answer is yes, you do it to the glory of God. And those things don't connect or add to the kingdom of God because they're not spiritual, they say. Now making disciples becomes evangelization, which they never ever do. We need to evangelize the nations. Well, who have you shared the gospel with this week? Anyone? You never really get around to teaching people the law of God and what he expects of them either, which is what Jesus said to do. What are you supposed to do? You baptize them and then what? You teach them. Yes. You teach them obedience. The issue for the church isn't a need for more piety, though prayer should be present. The issue is our definitions. Defining the church in terms of what the Bible teaches, not what man feels. And I'll tell you, one of the problems with pietism is that it misdiagnoses the real issue and it tries to meet it with a false solution. One writer says this, it sees a compromised church that is apparently caught in dead orthodoxy. The real problem is not dead orthodoxy, but spiritually dead sinners who give mental assent to orthodox truth but show no signs of regeneration. They see the supposed dead orthodoxy. We have to spice things up in the church. We need a fog machine, a smoke machine, cool lights. Psychedelics, yeah. God forbid. They think the problem is doctrine. Doctrine is boring. Why do we have to look at what the Greek says in the text? And why do we need to know what theology? That's just boring. I just want to go in my closet and pray for 16 hours. They see all of that as unimportant. And then they don't feel happy. And this is why each year some of the best-selling best books in America are written by heretics who reject the Trinity, who reject the Word of God as the inspired Word of God, and people gobble it up. They eat it. They want, you to, they want to tell you how amazing you are and all of that. But I tell you right now, friends, orthodoxy can't be dead. You know why? Because God's Word never returns void. Spir and spiritually unregenerate sinners who mentally assent to doctrine aren't saved. Let's make that clear. You can affirm these doctrines all you want, but if your life isn't changed, are you a Christian? Instead of leaning on the cross of Christ and the finished work, did you hear me? The finished, 
work of Christ, instead of coming up with a cure, pietism creates a volatile disease and they call it medicine. It's wicked. I'm going to end with this quote here, I promise. Clarence Thomas, anybody know that name? Clarence Thomas is a Supreme Court justice uh, in the United States, on the Supreme Court, okay? A brilliant man, a wonderful man, and in many ways is, is to be regarded as helping keep us in line in some fashion. But he gave a speech at a graduation a few years ago, and I thought it was a great speech, some of the things he said. But he said this, he made this observation when he was a kid, he was a farmer. He said this, if you didn't discharge your responsibilities, right, if you didn't do the chores on the farm, there could be no independence, no self-sufficiency, and no freedom. That's a profound quote. He's talking about farming. He's comparing farming to be, to like being citizens of a country. You want to be free? You want self-sufficiency? You want independence? Take care of your home. Do your job. Fight for the cause of justice and righteousness. Instead of discharging our responsibilities as, as kingdom citizens, we've, we've kicked back, and I'll tell you right now, this will step on some toes, but we've been kicking back and waiting for some rapture to happen. I think Thomas's observation is valid. You can't beat something with nothing. And everything in this world is covenantal, meaning it's related to God in some fashion, and nothing is neutral. Nothing. You're either on team Jesus or you're not. That's it. And we need to be discharging our responsibilities as disciple-making disciples, teaching the nations to bow to Christ. And if we don't do it, we're not going to get the results. Pietism isn't a valid option. I want to steer you away from that. It is antithetical to the biblical gospel. And it's high time that we do discharge our covenant responsibilities before God and develop a true biblical spirituality. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we glorify you with this word. We thank you that you have given us this scripture so that we could know you and we can know ourselves and we can know what it is you've called us to do in this world. And I pray that you would and, and strengthen and nurture the church in Zambia, that they would be persistent in their worship and service of you, but also persistent in being true salt and light in every nook and cranny of this country. I pray that you would strengthen Africa, that it would lead the world in righteousness and not folly like my country. We honor you and glorify you tonight, God, and we pray that as your word is preached with Brother Ron, that you would be magnified, that we would be edified, and that the church would be spurred on to greater, greater obedience. In Christ's name, amen. amen.